Um, so for those who are just joining us uh, who may not under, understand or realize that um, we planted this church just two months ago and went, oh, that'll be plenty of room for six months. And now two months in, the Lord, through his providence, has decided we're going to need more space. So here we are in the gym. Um, so bear with us today as we work out some kinks, but it is so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning um, to praise him and glorify him because that's really why we're here. Um, regardless of anything else, we are here to worship our King. So if you were with me this morning, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5. We've had four amazing chapters together over the last few months, and we're getting into the last two chapters, the last third of Ephesians. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to tackle the first six verses this morning. The title of the message is A Call to Godliness. A Call to Godliness. And this is going to build very, very well on the last few verses uh, that we talked about last week. And so if you would, once you've arrived in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, go ahead and stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word in honor of the one who gave us this word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It reads, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together this morning to worship and praise your holy name. We thank you for the opportunity through your grace alone, uh, through being united with you as uh, you fill us with your spirit, through your grace to be able to come together as a united body of believers to bring glory to you. We pray that we would be filled with your spirit and understanding the word as preached today. Uh, we pray that we will help uh, unify and unite around um, the common glory of your name. For me, Lord, I pray that you remove any distractions, any hindrances from inside of me, and, and um, any stresses of the morning or, or anything else um, that would impede the preaching of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will help me to speak clearly um, and to glorify you in all that we all that I do. In your holy name, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so, with our first move this morning, you have to, to bear with me. I had a little bit of uh, brain cloud in Sunday school, my brain not functioning as well as I would normally like it to, so if I misspeak, bear with me. But um, I am so excited about this text this morning. Um, the Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, uh, I've read it, I've read it a lot of times, uh, as many of us may have, but verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 5 has never um, it opened up, truly opened up the way it, it did this week in studying. It challenged me. Um, it, it, it taught me things that maybe I, I hadn't either meditated on or, or really thought about in a, in a while. And it, I'm so excited to share this with you this morning because getting into chapter five, um, we see the word therefore. And so, we, of course, when we think about that, we want to come off of what we've already read in Ephesians. And so we, we as, just as a reminder, going through Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we've talked about the indicative and all that Christ did in saving us and in God establishing his church, bringing the Jew and the Gentile together. And the second to last chapter of Ephesians is going to get into why we take the, the indicative, the, the why behind the reason for us being believers and apply that to here is what that means. Here is how you live. Here is, here is why understanding your position in Christ is important. Because if we don't understand our position in Christ, we will not bring glory to the Father, which is our full intention. Our full goal is to glorify the Father and enjoy Him forever. That is, that is the common, that is the intricate details of why we were created. And so in this text, we're going to see multiple things about Christ, His sacrifice, who He is, who we are in Him. And yet, we're going to see two, primarily two, sins that the church, frankly, has winked at for far too long. That the church has, has, frankly, played with fire for far too long. 
And we're going to see Paul calling us, the Holy Spirit through Paul calling us to be godly, to be imitators of God. So as we dig in, point number one, childlike imitators. We should be childlike imitators. And it says in verses 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So as we begin, therefore, we know coming off of last week, Paul gave us a laundry list of things that we should not be allowing into the life of a believer. And he said, because of these things, so put aside these things. In verse 32 of chapter 4, it says, be kind. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiven, forgiving. And then in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, therefore, be imitators of God. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is, to be tender-hearted, gracious, and forgiving to each other, just as God in Christ has graciously forgiven you, is to truly be an imitator of God. That is what being an imitator of God is like. But notice he adds on an extra wording at the end of verse 1. As beloved children. We are to be childlike imitators. We are children of the king. Doesn't it not make, does it not make sense that we would want to imitate our father? The best and most complete revelation that we have of God to us is seen in Jesus Christ. He came and he showed us ultimately what it was like to be a human that worshiped God correctly. To be a human who was in right relationship with God. To be a human who walked the earth and pointed to, pointed to God. That was the perfect incarnate Christ. That's what he gave us an example of. And then he united with us through his grace. He united us to himself that we now have this perfect incarnate son of God indwelling us and empowering us to be imitators of God. Then that is a beautiful picture. And, and Paul here is echoing what Christ said also while he walked the earth, Leviticus 19.2. This is not something that has changed. God told his, the, the, the foreshadow of Christ, the nation of Israel, in Leviticus 19.2, it says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. So if we are to imitate God, what does that mean? That we are to be holy. But think about, again, I'm going to point back to that second little phrase at the end of verse 1. As beloved children. We have to recognize our position before God to understand that being holy comes out of that. We are not holy because we imitate God. We imitate God because we are his children. Do you follow in other words, we cannot achieve holiness on our own. We don't go, I'm going to imitate God, and so that way I'm holy, and I want to be a child of God. I want to earn my place before God. No. We are holy because Christ makes us holy. And then we live that out because we are children of God, because of our position in Christ, because we are his, we then live that out. And that you're going to hear that being a common theme today because Paul is going to set up the indicative once again. He wants us to understand, be imitators of Christ as beloved children. Don't forget that you're a child of God. And then in verse 2, he's going to go on and talk about walking in love just as Christ loved. But before we get there, I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 15, if you would, please. John chapter 15. We're going to be in verse 12. And we're going to look at what Christ said to the disciples and ultimately to us. So that we truly understand our position in Christ and his command and what it boils down to. John 15, verse 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another, 
just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide, so that whenever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let me draw your attention there. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit. The entire reason for Jesus redeeming his elect was so that they would bring glory to the Father by producing the fruit that he has called us to produce. We have been chosen. We we saw this early in Ephesians chapter 1. We have been chosen out for good works. We have been created in Christ for good works. Paul has driven this theme home throughout the entire book of Ephesians. We are called and redeemed to glorify God, not only as a display of his mercy, but also as he changes our desires and works within us so that we bring him glory in our day-to-day activities. But remember, it is as beloved children. And why do I keep driving that home? Let Let me give you an example. A child will imitate a parent the most when they truly understand that the parent loves them and the depth of that love. Did you catch that? In our human human lives, we have to understand that our children imitate us the most when they truly understand that we love them, they're safe, their identity is found as a Lodic, for example. And when we think about that example that we have, there is no greater love displayed in all of history than the love that is displayed on the cross of Christ. And so now we can take that mindset and go, this is how much he loves us. As beloved children, we now imitate him. We have a calling in our position before God. And we are to walk in the love that we just read about. 1 John is is full of of the idea of love being the, the primary indicator of a follower of Christ. And Paul makes this connection as well. But there's something extra he gives here. We're going to camp here for just a few minutes. Verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 5. Because I've just described that Christ loved us on the cross and gave himself up for us. But Paul draws it back to something that sometimes I think I forget to really understand, to really meditate on and comprehend. So join me in thinking through this. He gave himself up, excuse me, gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. As a fragrant aroma. There is so much loaded in that phrase that sometimes I just forget to think about it. Because you're reading Ephesians and you go, yeah, the fragrant aroma, okay, that makes sense. But then you understand that Christ is the substance of the shadow of the Old Testament. And you begin to understand that the entire sacrificial system, and you can go ahead and even start turning there, Exodus chapter 29. Let's let's read it together. But Exodus chapter 29, go ahead and start turning there. But we, we, we have to understand that Christ was the fragrant offering that was acceptable to God. He was a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of the heavenly Father. And that is extremely significant because God gave the sacrificial system in order to be a foreshadowing of the substance, the true substance, the true sacrifice of Christ. And he gave us that as an example so that we would understand the need for a Savior. And so that we would understand that Our sacrifices are not enough. We are not enough. We need something outside of ourselves to be pleasing to God. Christ was the fragrant aroma that was pleasing to the Father that we could not muster ourselves. Exodus 29 and verse 18 reads, You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to Yahweh. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to Yahweh. And there's multiple places throughout 
uh, both Exodus and Leviticus, where you can read about the different sacrifices and then being a, a soothing aroma. And when I was a kid, I always think that's such an odd way of saying that. I, I don't understand a soothing aroma. And they would say it over and over, and you know, you're reading through your Bible in a year, and you've got to punch through Leviticus and hope you can keep going, right? How many people have failed there before? I know I did when I was a kid. You just get to Leviticus, and you're like, I can't read it anymore. But go read it. Get in depth on it. Because when we understand that this is a picture of Christ, this is a foreshadowing of Christ. Now, there is no substance in the shadow. Is there? Not, is there? When we stand out in the sun and you look at your shadow, there's no substance there. You can walk through it. But the substance is Christ. And so we understand that this shadow points to Christ, and we know that that is the sacrifice that we need. And so when we think through why were they offering sacrifices in the Old Testament, because they had sinned. 1 John 2 2 says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. We no longer need animals that we have to constantly sacrifice and follow through this same ritualistic mentality over and over and over again because Christ is the propitiation. But the picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system points us to the fact that we need atonement. We have violated the law of God. We can do nothing about it, and we have to have a Savior. And this idea of the soothing aroma, the fragrant aroma, is the idea of God's wrath being abated, even for a time. Now, when we think about the Old Testament, please understand what I'm saying, that did not actually forgive sins. Okay? They were following through what God commanded, and his wrath was abated. In other words, it was assuaged for a time. It was not completely taken, but he reserved his wrath. Think of a dam of water, and the, the water keeps building up behind the dam. So the wrath is still there. It's not gone, but it's abated. It's, it's, it's being held for a time. God in his sovereignty is holding back his wrath as though a hand is keeping it from being poured out on us. And then when we get to the New Testament, we see that Christ, and go ahead and start turning to Hebrews 7 with me, we see that Christ is the true high priest and sacrifice that we needed. And that dam of wrath is going to be opened up and poured out upon him. And so our finite minds can comprehend, Paul tells us to look back. So in Ephesians, Paul tells us to look back. He's using this idea of a fragrant aroma so that we will understand what it meant that Christ was sacrificed. Because if we don't understand that Christ sacrificed himself to take the wrath of God for us, we don't understand our position before a holy God and therefore cannot and will not live to the glory of God. We won't. If you don't understand your identity as a beloved child of the king and why we have that position, we are not going to live as children of God. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. <coughs> Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. It says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Not only was Christ the sacrifice, but Christ is the high priest that in his perfection did not even need to atone for himself. In the foreshadowing, the high priest had to first atone for himself to make sure that he was in a position where God's wrath would not be poured out upon him and he'd be smote in the tabernacle before he could even go in and take the sacrifice in to then atone for the, and assuage the, the, the wrath of God for the rest of the people. And yet Christ came, being the true high priest, lived a perfect life so that he had, had, did not have to atone for anything for himself, sacrificed himself, and then as the high priest and the sacrifice took his work before God into the throne room and laid it out after taking that wrath for three hours on the cross and said, the wrath is appeased. I have atoned. It's called the penal substitutionary atonement. 
that there was a penalty that had to be paid, and that penalty had to be poured out on someone. And the substitution is that we could not do it ourselves. There had to be a substitute. We could not stand there and take the penalty for ourselves. And so Christ took that penalty in our place to atone for our sins that we could never atone for ourselves. I want to show you one more thing in Hebrews. If, you've, if you haven't done a, a thorough study of Hebrews, I, I highly, highly recommend that you do that. But Hebrews chapter 9, just over a couple chapters, verses 11 through 14. It reads, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled and sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the connection? The writer of Hebrews makes the connection for us. The same thing that Paul is trying to get us to understand is that we are beloved children of God because of the fragrant aroma sacrifice of Christ. And if we know that, that God assuaged his own wrath by the foreshadow, the, 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 the part of, of, that didn't have substance, and assuaged his wrath because of that, how much more will his wrath be completely satisfied with the perfect sacrifice of Christ? who then, at the end of Hebrews that we just read, will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So this high priest is offering such a sacrifice that we can be cleansed in our conscience to then serve God. Do you see all that Paul packed into that one sentence? And that's why I said earlier, I hadn't read this in a long time with that kind of lens on, and it's so deep, I almost drowned this week in the glory of God. Drowning and understanding the sacrifice, understanding what Paul packed into two verses. Because that is amazing. It is amazing that we are children of God because we have no right to that. No right to that. It is amazing that he would sacrifice himself to atone for us and our things that we did before a holy God. And what this should do is then motivate our imitation. That's our application. This should motivate our imitation. We should see ourselves as children of God by grace alone, and that should so impact us and drown us, if you will, in the glory of God, that we can do nothing else but look at him and follow him. Because we follow and obey God out of our position, we don't get to that position because we obey. And if, again, if we don't understand our position, we will never be victorious in the Christian life. The substance of the shadow that was set forth for Israel to follow is no longer needed. Christ is the greater high priest. Christ is the sacrifice. And we are united with him. So keep that in the forefront of your mind as we continue. Because now Paul has set up the indicative. We understand our position. So now we're going to continue. Point number two, not named among saints. Because now he's going to, the rubber's going to meet the road now. Paul says, this is your position. We're going to be imitators of, of God. Here we are. Now do this. So let's read verses, review verses three through five of, of Ephesians chapter five. It says, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And this is an expansion of Ephesians 4.17. If you remember back in Ephesians 4.17, it says, Therefore this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So now Paul is giving us more detail to what that means. 
But when we think about the details here, we're going to break these different terms down and we're going to understand what they, they truly mean for our lives. Because now that we understand our position before God, we can go, okay, these other things are no longer who I am. This is who I am in Christ. I'm a beloved child and I will live as a beloved child. I will imitate my father who loves me. So starting first, sexual immorality or any impurity. The idea of no sexual immorality or impurity is a couple of specific words here that has a little bit bigger meaning than maybe we would think in our culture. The word for sexual activity here is pornea. It's a general word that, that uh, means all sexual activity outside of marriage, all of it. It's not specifically adultery. It's not specifically fornication. It is all sexual activity outside of marriage. In our world today, that includes pornography, conversations you shouldn't be having with a member of the opposite sex, being overly flirtatious, whatever, whatever kind of, of label you... It, Paul left it so general that it covers the entire realm of everything except for proper sexual activity within marriage. That's it. That's it. Everything else is off the table. And then he continues with another word in the Greek that is used, it's, it's translated here as impurity. You may have uncleanness depending on your, gener- on your uh, version. But that also is a very general term that means anything morally vile or contrary to the will of God. Do you realize the two huge umbrellas that Paul just laid down for us to, 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 to follow? That, those are two really big umbrellas. Nothing morally vile, or contrary to the will of God, nothing outside of, se- of sexual activity and marriage. That really limits what we are to and how we are to live, does it not? But doesn't that almost make it more simple? In our world, it doesn't when we think about all the, the sexual tension and, and, and constant bombardment that we have in our culture. But truly, if you're not married, leave it alone. I mean, that's, if you're not married before God, that, that's off the table. Like, in simpl- from a simplistic manner, that's, that's really simple. Now, it's harder to live out, so please understand I'm not saying it's simple to follow. But it's, a simp- it's really a simple thought. If you're not married, don't. That's simple. And if it's contrary to the will of God, don't do it. Now, what has God just told us is his will? To love. To walk in love as Christ walked in love. Right? I think sometimes we overcomplicate the will of God. Don't we? Like, we want, we want a plane riding in the sky with, with clouds that says, do this, Josh. Right? When we really do overcomplicate, we want all these details. Well, where, where should I... What job should I take? What, should I move here? Should I move there? When you, when, when in reality, are you loving God first and loving your neighbor? Yeah? Okay, do it. Buy that house. If you can afford it and you're not putting yourself in debt, which means you're not loving your family, which are your closest neighbors, do you, do you, do you see how that logic, you can trace everything back to those two things. Am I buying this car because I want to look good or am I buying this car because I need a car? Do you, do you follow where the logic is there? Are you loving God above everything? And are you loving your neighbor above yourself? And it falls under those two categories. So Paul is making sure that we don't fall into the trap by being this specific with these terms, using the particular terms that he does. He's making sure that we don't fall into the trap that love is more important than purity. Because it we can very quickly, what's the motto of the month we just came out of? Love is love. No. No, it's not. Love is what God says it is. And purity is just as important as love. Paul is making sure that we don't swing the pendulum too far. I've talked about this, I think, almost every sermon in the last month. I don't know why it's so prevalent in my mind, but it is. Christianity has got to stop swinging the pendulum too far. The church has got to stop and find that balance. Just because love 
God talks about love doesn't mean that we let everything go. And then he adds on here, greed. So we've talked about sexual morality, we've talked about impurity, and now greed must not even be named among you. Greed, I think we all are pretty familiar with greed. I don't have to go into much detail on that. It is, there is no fancy term that's a big general. Don't be greedy. Be content with what you've been given by the Lord. But then he says something important. Must not even be named among you. That means you can't even be accused of it. You shouldn't be accused of it. Excuse me. Sometimes the world will accuse you of things that are so off the wall. Don't even know where it came from. Left field. But we should live in such a manner that we are above, repro above reproach, as Paul calls it in another epistle. That we are living above reproach. That if someone says, I know that so-and-so stole this, that the person knows you so well that goes, that doesn't even make sense. It shouldn't even compute that that could be something that you could be accused of. Does that make sense? You, you should live your life to the glory of God to the point where someone can't even imagine you doing a sexual misconduct, something impure, and being greedy. Because we are saints. Because that's what's proper among saints. And if you recall, we've talked about the word saint in Ephesians before. It's holy ones or set apart ones. We are set apart from the world. The ones that God has redeemed out of the world that he put his hand on and drew us out, left the rest of the world there and says, that is, that is you. You are reaping the consequences of your own actions. This one right here is mine. And he sets us apart, for we are the holy ones. We are saints. And these things that Paul just mentioned should not even be named among us. They should look at the church, truly, the world should look at the church and go, I cannot believe they would act like that. Because they are children of God, right? We're to be imita so imitators of God that it can't even be imagined that we would act as such. And so he draws us back to understanding our position before God, even before getting to the next verse. Do you see? Again, our obedience comes from understanding our position. Then he goes on in verse 4, Nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And earlier when I said that this, this challenged me a lot, this, this is where something that, that challenges me a lot making jokes and, and, and guarding my tongue. And the words that Paul uses here, the three words for filthiness, foolish talk, and coarse jesting are the only place in the entire New Testament that these words are used. Paul is very specific what he means here. So for filthiness, it is vulgarity. The idea of vulgar and, and filthy language. It's a broad term that covers vulgarity and filthiness. But again, it's only used here in the New Testament. And then foolish talk, also only used here. It's the language of fools. A, a, a literal translation would be language of fools. And then coarse jesting, also only used here, is the idea of smutty talk or humor in bad taste. Smutty talk or humor in bad taste. Now you may say, Josh, why are you giving us this academic word study. Because truly, if we don't understand what, what the original author intended us to understand, how are we going to live it out? Please understand, I'm not, I'm not using these words. I don't even want to try to pronounce them in the original language because that doesn't matter. But understanding what the original authors was trying to get us to understand is imperative to our ability to follow the command. Because the Holy Spirit did indeed inspire what he wanted written for a very specific reason. So those three terms used only here in the New Testament should challenge all of us because I know for me, being transparent, making jokes and making people laugh at the expense of whatever I need to say sometimes gets away with me. And I have to guard myself. I have to guard my tongue. And it's much better than it used to be. You can ask my wife. So I praise God for the progress that's been made. But I'm certainly not there. And so pray for me in that. 
But it is evident here that Paul is wanting us to understand this section, how seriously the language and words that a believer speaks are. It's vitally important. Are we building up or are we tearing down? Because Paul follows up with what we should be doing. Giving of thanks. Giving of thanks one to another. Giving of thanks to God. And if you are giving thanks, do you have room in your language to be impure? Or making jokes that you shouldn't? Hey, thanks for picking up the table. Hey, thanks kids for doing what I asked you to do. Thank you, Lord, for letting me get through that red light. Yes, I've prayed that. <laughs> it is. It, thank you, Lord, that I can fill up my gas tank this morning. Even though gas prices are way higher than I'd like them to be. But thank you, Lord, that I can go to this job. And there are some days that I struggle with that because I don't want to get up and go to work. But when we have a different outlook on the circumstances around us, we have no room in our vocabulary for impure language, filthiness, foolish talk, coarse jesting. We should be giving thanks. So I encourage you to have that mindset of being thankful for all that we have. Now, in verse 5, it reads, For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So I want to correct a couple of things here and talk about what this verse does not mean, and then we are going to talk about what it does mean. This verse has been ripped out of context on occasion, kicking and screaming, I might add, because it's very clear what it's saying, or should be, but it's been ripped out of context, kicking and screaming, to tell you, or to tell believers, that you can lose your salvation. That what this is saying is that if you've sinned, if, you, if you've been impure, I heard it preached over and over when I was a kid, raising up in the, the environment that I was, the, the IFB, that you were not saved clearly if you had a sexual indiscretion. Clearly you couldn't be. And if you were, you lost your salvation. There was, there was some wings that said you were, you may have been, but then you lost it. Or because you were greedy, because you bought a too expensive of a house, clearly you're not saved. You lost your salvation. You, I mean, clearly this verse says that you can't be, that, that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying it's what's called an elliptical form of writing. An elliptical form of writing. It means that the meaning is so plain, you shouldn't have to write it all out again. Because Paul has just spent three and parts of chapter four explaining our position in Christ is by Christ alone, not by our actions. And then he rehashes that again here in the first few verses of chapter 5 and says, if you still are those things, here is your position in Christ. But if you still are an idolater, you don't have an inheritance in Christ. If you are still greedy, you don't have an inheritance of Christ. But your position of Ephesus, I'm writing to you that your position is in Christ. Do you see the difference? It's not about losing salvation. He's simply showing the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not. This does not and cannot be interpreted as once you are saved, you will be perfect because you won't be. Because the context, the context of Scripture is very clear. The context of Ephesians as a whole, the context of the New Testament, the context of all these different passages that I could point to this morning is you will not be perfect. So it cannot mean, when you're studying Scripture, you use the easy to interpret and understand passages to help with the hard to interpret and understand passages. And we know very black and white, black ink, white paper, Christians are not perfect after salvation. End of story. That is an easy thing. That's an easy, I can point to it, see it. So then we come to a verse like this that goes, yes, if you read it by itself, it sounds like you can lose your salvation. But that is not jive, that does not jive with what we know to easily understand, which is Christians aren't going to be perfect, but they're still children of God. So we come back and go, okay, so it has to mean something else. We have to understand, in context of Ephesians, this does not say that you will lose your salvation for sinning. But what it does say 
hear me on this, what it does say is that the church has got to stop winking at such things because that is not who we are. In our world today, sexual immorality in the church is swept under the rug nine times out of ten. I've seen it happen. I've read about it happening. The entire Southern Baptist Convention is nearly taken down by it. Okay? And what about greed? Some believers, some churches, some cultures of Christianity wear greed as a badge of honor. Who has the biggest truck? Who has the biggest house? Those are two things that I think we as a current culture in the church have got to check ourselves in. The last time I read a poll, and it's been months, so I, I didn't, it just came to my mind, so, so you can check the data on this. It was something like over 80% of men who claim to be Christians in churches look at pornography weekly. Weekly. That should not be named among the saints. So Paul says. The divorce rate of married couples is now over 50%. Where we're just, we're mirroring the world. And how many of those are based on sexual morality from either husband or wife? That should not be named among the saints. How many believers are so far in debt that the parents have to work two, three, four jobs, never be able to raise their kids as they should because greed has taken so a hold of them, they have to keep up with the Joneses? Should that be named among the saints? Just because our culture lives and in, 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 in lives in, in such a way does not mean that we do. We should not be practicing the things of the world. But it's because of our position in Christ. It doesn't take, it doesn't, everything I just said is still a go and do, but it's be, you go and do it because you're a child of the king. So that, that's a heavy thing to talk about. It's a heavy thing to challenge the sexual immorality in the church. It's a heavy thing to challenge the greed in the church. Those are heavy things. But understand, we do not follow God in those things when we don't understand our position in Christ. Because we will not live as a child of God unless we understand we are a child of God. We don't become children of God because we are not greedy and are not sexually immoral. We are children of God, therefore we don't do those things. Do you, do you see the difference? This, there's a quote I'd like to read to you about this passage. Paul doesn't say, love God and do as you please, but he says, if you want to know what love demands, then pay attention to what the prime source of love requires. God's law reveals to us what is pleasing to him. The point of this passage is that if we are his children and we want to imitate him, we must seek to obey his laws. This is not to be done slavishly out of servile fear or out of some rigid stoical desire for rule-keeping, but rather from a profound desire to express our love for the Father. I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, I mentioned earlier that children who truly imitate their parents understand that they are truly loved and want to reciprocate that love, and so they imitate their parents. Let us truly understand the love of the Father for us, so that we will imitate that. So we are called to be different from the world. We are children of the king. We, out of our position as children, that's the application. We, out of an understanding of our position before the king, as children of that king, then live as though we are children of that king. We exercise and obey God out of the centrality of understanding our position in him. And God, by his grace, do you know that it is his grace that explicitly tells us what we are to and not to do, are to do and not to do? That is a gracious thing that our father loves us so much that he doesn't say, hey, you're my child, and then sends us out in the world on our own. The parents explain to their kids how to avoid dangers and how to take care of themselves and be successful and have a family and be a productive member of society because they are our children. We don't make them our children by going to tell them what to do. 
Do you follow the difference? I'm going to keep driving home that difference because so it's so much easier to fall into. I'm just going to do all these things to make sure I'm a child of God instead of going, I'm a child of God, so I'm going to do these things. There is a vast difference between those two. And it sounds so similar. The wording almost sounds the same. But in functionality, it's different. The motivations are different. Children are our children because they do what we say. Children are children because they're our children, and we teach them to do what we say because of that. Okay, point number three. The wrath of God. Verse six, the wrath of God. And I'm going to touch on what the text says about the wrath of God, which has become almost taboo in a lot of evangelicalism today, the wrath of God. Verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words. That is saying, Paul is literally telling the readers of this letter and subsequently us, that those who tell you that there is no wrath of God is a false teacher. Empty words come from false teachers. Like, I understand the implication of the term empty words. Words with no meaning that are lies. Either either blatant lies or words with no meaning. Those who would oppose publicly the wrath of God existing or would preach or teach that is a false teacher and should be marked and avoided. The wrath of God is real. And if the wrath of God was not real, we would not be here. For if the wrath of God was not real, we would not be We would not have a need to be saved from it. And therefore, Christ would not have come. And therefore, we would not have grace. And he would not indwell us. And we would not be believers. The wrath of God is absolutely imperative to how God functions with humanity. Because if he was not wrathful against those who broke his law, he would not be just. And if he were not just, he would not be perfect. And if he were not perfect, he would not be holy. Do you see how that very quickly unravels? You take one attribute of God out. And he's, the entire Christian faith falls apart because it's built on him. And so I want to, to give you the breakdown here that those who would mark the wrath of God is not either non-existent or at, at worst or not as important as love at best should be marked and avoided. And then... Paul goes on to explain, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul is drawing the line between who he has just talked about. Who, what did he call, and I've said it several times, so hopefully we're all on the same page. What did Paul call the Christians in verse 1 of this chapter? Children of God. Now he's calling those who are not found in Christ, what? Essentially, children of disobedience, sons of disobedience, but it's the same thing, children of disobedience. Paul is making a definitive, um, oh, I told you my brain was foggy today, a definitive um, difference between the two positions of children. Those who are children of the father of lies, those who are children of disobedience, and those who are children of God. Do you see how you can make that distinction? There it is, there's the word. Do you see how you can make that distinction? Do you see how long that took? Man, the distinction between the two positions. And so now you can understand the interpretation of verse 5. is not that you can lose your salvation, it's that you're still a son of disobedience. And you're not a son of God. Ephesians 2, 2, early in the chapter, if you remember, early in the book, it says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So he's writing to the Ephesians, this is what you, how you formerly walked. This is no longer who you are. You are no longer sons and daughters of disobedience. You are children of the king. Do you think Paul's trying to get a message across? We better pay attention to it because so many times we read this as a list of do's and don'ts. Yes, we need to understand. We we have to follow God and understand he is giving us these so we know what to strive for. But every few verses through this entire book, we are drawn back to Christ Our eyes are forced to look back to him. Our eyes are drawn to the position that we have in him. And we were told, rest in his work, not ours. Over and over and over and over again. Every time he says, do this, he says, but rest in Christ. 
Do this because you're in Christ. Don't do this to earn Christ. Do it because of Christ. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven. I want you. To, I want to give you a different angle of how he explains this. It's the same idea, but it's a different angle that Paul's writing. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven reads: Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived: neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you stop there, you go, bummer. But he continues on. And such were some of you. And he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This is how you were, but God. This is what you did. This is, you lived like this because that's what you were. You were an, idol, an idolater. But you were sanctified. You were justified because of Christ. You were washed. This is no longer who you are. Do you see the contrast that Paul is making? He doesn't just tell them to stop doing those things. To be this, he says, that's just not who you are anymore. You're justified. And it's almost like it naturally, he goes on and explains in detail not to do these things, but all I'm saying is in this context of right here, he goes, that's just not who you are anymore. And Paul's simple explanation is, if that's not who you are, then you shouldn't be doing it. Not saying you're going to be perfect at it, but that's just not who you are anymore. And he does a similar example, and I wanted to show two because I wanted to show the, the, the several different churches he wrote to. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 for me, verse 19. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26. Paul here is now, we're using different wording. He's using flesh versus spirit. The, the, those who are still living in the flesh and those who are now of the spirit. It reads, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become those with a vainglory, challenging one another, envying one another. You see what Paul says? He says, this is the flesh, and gives all the indicators of those who are still in the flesh, gives the indicators of those who are in the Spirit, and says, those who are in Christ had those things crucified. The flesh was actually crucified, using the same terminology. Crucified the flesh, the cross of Christ. Our flesh, those who are of the elect, our sinful flesh was crucified on that cross with Christ. It no longer has a hold over us. That is no longer who we are. We are of the Spirit now. So we live out based on our position before God. That wrath was poured out upon Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, we talked about that word earlier, in his blood through faith, for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, which he's done for all of us until the moment of justification. Keep that in mind. For the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm not going to preach this passage because I could, and I want to, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. But go back, write that down, Romans 3, 21 through 26, if you didn't take a note of it. Write that down and go back and read it and think through it, meditate on it today. For all have sinned, but we are justified by the gift of his grace through the redemption which is Christ Jesus. The wrath for those sins, the wrath for the fleshly things that we do, the wrath for being an idolater, for being impure, for being greedy, those things have been appeased. God is no longer, there is not one drop of wrath left from God for the elect for anything that they have done that is against his law. Not one drop. And then understanding in that position, that's the application, we are not sons and daughters of disobedience. That's not who we are. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. That was poured out, it's gone, it's done. We do not have that over us anymore. Praise God. Jesus took that for us by his grace. And understanding that fragrant aroma, that fragrant aroma that his sacrifice created to God to appease his wrath is why you and I are here today. A second point of application, anyone that questions the wrath of God should be avoided. Anyone that questions the wrath of God should be avoided. Because if the wrath of God didn't exist, then Christ died for nothing. One more quote about this passage, because I just, I love the way it was worded. It's very similar to the other one, but it's from someone else. God's imperatives and our obedience rest on the, that loving relationship. They do not form the relationship. You catch that? God's imperatives and our obedience rest on that loving relationship. They do not form the relationship. We obey because we are loved. We are not loved because we obey. The love of our Father precedes and stimulates the obedience of His children. We are to forgive and live and love as dearly loved children, imitating the one who already is our Father and not performing to bribe God to become our Father. There's a wild difference between the two. So we must use the gospel to help motivate. So as I, as I conclude, we must use the gospel to help motivate those who have fallen in sin. We must, because they will not overcome the sin that they have fallen into without understanding their position before God. Paul makes that very clear. We don't live, these, these six verses, we don't live as children of God unless we understand that we are children of God. And so in those times where we have forgotten and we've fallen into sin, then it's easy to go, man, I must not be saved. Or your brother and sister comes to you and says, hey, I'm really struggling right now. Hey, what you should do is try harder. There is nothing in Scripture that says that. I can tell you, there's, no, if there's things that says do and not do. Nowhere in Scripture does it say try harder. What it says is look to Christ. That's what it says. Look to Christ. Look at the position. Look at the gospel. You were sinners. This is who you were. You were sons and daughters of disobedience. Now you're beloved children of the King. So we must point each other back to the gospel at every opportunity so that we would be motivated by the love and work of Christ to walk out and live out the love that he showed us. To be holy as our Father is holy. And keep in mind, if you ever start losing focus on that, keep in mind of your own kids if, you've, if, you've, if you're a parent or have been. Think of that. Your kids obey and look up to you and love the same way that you show them love. We look to our Heavenly Father who loved us beyond anything that we can even imagine and gave His Son for us. And that should motivate us to live like Him.
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at our positions in Christ today. Thank you for understanding what it means to be united to the one that was a fragrant aroma to you, to the substance of the shadow that you laid down so many centuries ago, that we can understand our position in him and understand that we are no longer all of those things that we read about. Such were some of us, but we were washed. We were sanctified. We are justified. Help us to understand what that means in our position in you, that we might obey and bring you glory as a church body together. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen.